Amen. If you would join me in Ezra chapter 6, verse 19. Ezra chapter 6, verse 19. As we continue our return, rebuild, renew series. It says, On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their relatives, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites, who had returned from the exile, ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors, in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria, so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that we'd be open to your word, uh, this ancient document that has uh, changed this world as we know it for centuries upon centuries, as men and women have read the pages of this book and found life and hope and had their hearts and minds renewed by your word. I pray today that we would be open to your spirit speaking to us. We'd have eyes to see, ears to hear. And that God, we would go out and put into practice what your word says. We wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers of the word. For you are worthy of such. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe say, well, uh, one of my favorite uh, books, uh, one of my favorite Hebrew words, uh, as many of you well know, is the word hevel. Uh, comes in the book of Ecclesiastes where it says in many translations, vanity, vanity, life is vanity or meaningless, meaningless, life is meaningless. And I love that word hevel uh, because it speaks to what we experience so much as we go through life and we do the right things and then it doesn't go the way that we expected it would go. Uh, what do we call that? Hevel. When you do the right thing and it doesn't work out. Well, one of my favorite words, well, uh, this week I've got a new uh, Hebrew word that I love, uh, and interestingly enough, uh, found it in the wild, wild west of social media, uh, which uh, folks don't, uh, normally you don't get good spiritual insight uh, from social media, uh, just to be honest with you, is, uh, and you can't really believe everything you read uh, on the internet. I, I think, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe everything you read on the internet, but... Um, <laughs> Anyway, but this, this week was different, and I found something that I actually looked it up to double-check it, and it's, it's true. And talking about uh, Psalm 23, the 23rd Psalm, one of our most beloved uh, psalms, uh, there at the end it talks about how goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow, the Hebrew word radaf, everybody say Radaf. Radaf. Okay, so, uh, so there's that word. What, what does it mean? It means uh, that you are chased, that you're pursued. And I looked it up, and it's actually used of the Israelites pursuing the Philistines. It's used of King Saul pursuing David, chasing him, hunting him. And the psalmist says, the goodness and mercy of God radafs us. 
like you're a fugitive on the run and God's goodness and mercy are hunting you down. Every day you wake up, yes, there's a roaring lion seeking to devour you, but I also want you to know goodness and mercy are following you. All the days of your life, every day you wake up, all the time, goodness and mercy are following you. And as, hallelujah, amen, there's another Hebrew word, right? So as we're in Ezra, I can't think of a better word to capture what God is doing. Because for centuries upon centuries, his people have gone through their ups and through their downs. God is relentless in his pursuit of them. They've gone into Babylonian exile because of their rebellion and idolatry. God hasn't given up on them. God brings them back. Now they've, they've uh, taken a shot at building the temple and they got discouraged. They uh, faced frustration and they gave up. God hadn't given up though. He's still pursuing them. Goodness and mercy are still going after them. And that's where we pick up today, where God finally meets them and they ultimately see the temple constructed. And so today I want to talk about four powerful tenets of God's redeeming grace. Four powerful tenets of God's redeeming grace. And number one, God provides new opportunities. God provi- Amen. God provides new opportunities. The whole reason Judah and Benjamin came back to Jerusalem was to build the temple. The whole reason they kept thousands of miles, a long time it took them. I mean, some of us, we, we did good just getting to church this morning, right? I mean, what do you live like five minutes away from the church and some of us come dragging in here, you know, uh, trying to make it into church like some major thing has happened? No, they traveled thousands of miles, months and upon months And they finally made it back and then they spent all this time working to lay the foundation. And after they get the foundation laid, those who saw the last temple were upset about it. You ever done something good and you want to show someone else and they're like, yeah, it's not really that impressive. So unimpressive was the foundation that they laid for the temple that the people who saw the previous temple were crying. They were weeping aloud and some were rejoicing, some were weeping and nobody could tell the difference. That was the dynamic that was taking place. And so they've come back, they've laid the foundation, and ultimately their their plans were frustrated, and they had to stop at the end of... I just want you to put your eyes on this. At the end of Ezra 4, verse 24, there's that word we read last week. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. It came to a standstill. Sometimes when God charges you to do something... You fail. He doesn't promise you immediate success. You can expect failure. In fact, you probably will fail before you succeed. Puts a whole new spin on fail to succeed. You fail in order to succeed sometimes. That's the way life is. Failure is part of the journey. But um, have you ever seen a a dog chase squirrels? Okay. I've got a dog. uh, We've got a dog uh, at our house named Ozzy. And every day, uh, and and Ozzy's got a gimpy leg, okay? Uh, So so when he runs, he only runs using three legs. Uh, It's uh, entertaining to watch. But, But every day he wakes up and he chases squirrels, okay? We've got a bunch of them in, in our area. And you know something? I have never seen Ozzy catch a squirrel. 
he has never been successful. But he wakes up every day like today is the day. Something good's going to happen today. And he sees a squirrel and he shoots off after that squirrel like this is it. This is my moment. Fail. Okay. Ten minutes later, he's right back at it. Folks, I think that's a good illustration for how our life ought to look. You're going to fail. You're going to say, okay, here's the thing I know I need to do. Here's the right thing, the thing I know I need to do. And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to chase that squirrel. I'm not going to get it maybe today, but I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to try all over again. It's kind of the flip side. It's the other side of Radoff where you're pursuing, you're chasing what you know to be the right thing to do regardless of the outcome. Israel had, by all accounts and purposes, failed. They tried, they built the foundation, they had that much laid, and everything came to a standstill. But if you're still in Ezra 4, verse 24, there's that next word that changes everything. Praise God for this word because it says... Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until. There's that word, until, Jared's translation, until it didn't, right? Until the day came and it wasn't at a standstill anymore and things began to move forward until, uh, Hebrew word which means it ain't over yet, right? God's not done yet. We've failed. We've tried. We've uh, come up against a brick wall. And God's not done. We shouldn't be either. God's not done. We shouldn't be either. We have to have that mentality every single day. Because failure was part of their story. But failure was not the end of the story. Failure is not the last chapter to be written. So you might be experiencing defeat today. You might have felt like, oh, Here's the right thing for me to do. Here's the thing that God wants me to do. Whatever that might be. Might be something very practical, very small, something very big, something you've tried before. But let me just tell you something. Just because you have failed doesn't mean that has to be the end of the story. That's not the way the world where you wake up every day and you do what God's called you to do. You do the right thing. You leave the outcome to God. Because we plant, we water, God brings the increase. Outcomes can distract us from doing what we're supposed to be doing. Even when we feel defeated, we wake up and we are to go after it yet again. In chapter 5 that we alluded to last week, Haggai and Zechariah do what prophets do. Uh, They prophesied to the people uh, to return. They uh, wrote letters again to uh, the emperor Darius and they're given a new opportunity. All of uh, what, what we see coming up to chapter 6 and chapter 6 and following is another decree from uh, Darius where uh, a letter was written and says, hey, you return to building the house of the Lord and if anybody messes with you, they're going to be messing with me and nobody messes with me. And so now they've got the covering of the king to go back and to continue their work. But God provided a new opportunity. He provided a fresh opportunity, and they didn't sit around. I want you to notice this. They didn't sit around and wait for God to do something. Have you ever seen people do that? I, I mean, if, if you're a minister, sometimes people will just tell, I'm just waiting to see what the Lord does. And that's an excuse for, I'm not going to do anything right now. 
We're just waiting to see what the Lord does. Well, the thing is, the Lord does stuff through people. That's how God does stuff. And, and as we, uh, you, you wouldn't get to the end of Ezra 6 and the completion of the temple had God not worked through Haggai and Zechariah and other faithful people who did what God told them to do. We don't sit passively back and wait for God to do something. We go out and we do what God's called us to do. And in doing that, we see God powerfully work in our midst. That's what we're supposed to do. Number two, number two, God prospers us through the word. So God provides new opportunities, and they often come when we're walking in obedience. It's amazing how doors just seem to open uh, for people who walk in obedience. They walk in faithfulness, and they're the ones that get to see God working, not those who just passively sit back and wait for something to happen. But we also see that God prospers us through the word. Look at Ezra chapter 6, verse 13. It says, Then because of the decree of King Darius, excuse me, because of the decree of King Darius had sent, Tetanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shetha-Bozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of God, the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So this is spanning three reigns, three kings that this work is taking place. And after the decree, it says that they carried out the decree with diligence, literally meaning carefully, thoughtfully, exactly. So they were given instructions. Uh, any of you ever got instructions of how to put things together? You know, it's like Christmas time and you, you're flipping through and it's like giving you instructions. And, and some of us are like, you know, I'm going to take some of those into account, right? And then when you get to the end, you've got a few uh, nuts and bolts laying around. You're like, well, I hope that's not important. And one day you find out it probably was. But uh, the reality is sometimes we get instructions and we uh, kind of go our own way. No, they carried out the instructions with diligence, literally exactly, carefully, and thoughtfully. They took the decree seriously, and ultimately that led to them completing the temple. But what fueled them in all of this? You've got the span of three kings, and ultimately what fuels them to completion? It's that the Bible says the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai and the prophet Zechariah. So literally the people prospered by means of preach, the preaching of the prophet. Some versions say prophesying, others say preaching. They're both different angles of the same activity where you're taking God's word, you're taking his message, and you're delivering it to the people. This is God's word for us. If I do my job good and well this morning, it's only to help you understand what the word of God says to us. And so uh, that's what's taking place here, and that's how they prospered was by means of the word of God. This sustained prophecy fuels them to finish what God called them to do. But what does such prophecy look like? If we turn over 
excuse me, to Haggai, Haggai the prophet. Turn over to Haggai. In Haggai, at the beginning, he begins to give us commentary that sounds very familiar with what we've been reading. It says in the opening verses of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So this is the same thing going on. So you've got different accounts of uh, the same activity. And here's what happens. Verse 2 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And so at some point along the journey, they've been, the whole reason they're back in Jerusalem is to build the house of the Lord. Like that's the whole reason they're there is to build the temple. And somehow, some way, as they face the challenges that they face, they came to the conclusion now's not the time to build the house of the Lord. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. So whatever he was preaching and prophesying, it sounded something like this. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it's turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain and the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle on the labor of your hands. So what does Haggai tell them? He's like, consider your ways. Consider your life. How's that working out for you? They're going through a drought. They're going through a a lot of difficulty. They don't have divine perspective on it yet. You know, that's that's the thing about living through the pages of the Bible. They didn't have the commentary of the Bible. So we can go to Ezra 4, 21 or whatever it was I, I read earlier where it says, at a standstill until. They didn't have that word yet. They didn't have that word. They didn't have the divine perspective that this is going to ultimately be completed. What they had is, here's what I want you to do. What's right in front of you. Do this. That's what I want you to do. That's what they were called to do. Same kind of thing with Haggai. He is giving them a divine perspective on what's going on. They're like, man, we're going through this famine. We're going through this drought. We're having a hard time earning wages. All of these difficulties. Haggai comes in and says, pay attention to all of that. Consider your ways. God's talking to you. God's talking. You're living for things that ultimately when you breathe your last breath aren't going to matter. Wake up. Do the work of the Lord. That's what's going to bring meaning and fulfillment to your life. That's what's going to bring satisfaction to your life is to do the work of the Lord. Consider your ways. Just take a step back, look yourself in the mirror, and look at your life and see how it's playing out for you. Is it working? This is Haggai. 
the prophet, calling people to reflect on their life. And so it was through this, through the words of Zechariah, that the people were awakened, that they began to work again, and it was the word of God ultimately that sustained them, preached by the prophets, stirring people to action, stirring people to obedience, and they prospered because they listened and they obeyed. We like listening, don't we? Love listening. It's the obeying part that's grueling. Because you don't always have a team of cheerleaders next to you cheering you on. Sometimes you're alone and you think nobody sees, nobody notices. And so the question is, are you content to know that God sees you, that God sees your heart, that he notices? Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? Do you need the accolades of men? Are you content to say, God sees me? God sees that I'm trying to be faithful right now, and that's pleasing to him, and that's enough for me. They prospered under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. So be attentive to the word. Be open to being corrected by the word. Notice that they were corrected, right? They're building their house. They're they're working on their own stuff. They're ignoring the work of the Lord. And that meant that Haggai's word of prophecy to them was a correction to what they were doing. Now, we love coming to church and getting our tanks filled with knowledge. But I'll tick you off in a heartbeat if I start messing with the way you're living your life. Right? That's the way it works. Haggai put a bullseye on them and said, the way you're living is not working. Consider your ways. Be attentive, be open to correction, and then apply the word afresh to your life. This is discipleship. This is the process of becoming like Christ. But if you unplug yourself from the word, you will spiritually shrivel up. You won't realize it. It's not like you've got a big red light anytime you start heading, in, heading south in your spiritual walk that starts beeping. You drift. We prosper under the word. Number three, attendant of God's grace. God picks us up and gives us reason to dance. God picks us up and gives us reason to dance. Notice verse 16. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for service of God at Jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. So still being attentive to what the book of Moses said, still trying to be ordered by the word of God, but they celebrate, they rejoice in the goodness of God. So God sovereignly moves in the heart of Darius. Now some... Interesting story, this is a side note, by the way. We've got a little time. Uh, interesting story, my last church uh, preached through Darius, and one of the, the older deacons came to me and, and informed me of a debate he had had with the previous pastor on this name, Darius. Is it Darius or Darius? Darius or Darius? And he said they kind of debated back and forth, and my predecessor did something I would never be brave enough to do. Um, but he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, we'll go with what your 
saying it is, Darius, he said, because for all I know, y'all were on a first name basis back then. Now, the deacon told me this story. He thought it was great, but I thought, man, he's got more courage than I do. But we're going to go with Darius because we have an eyewitness account of this. Um, Darius. But um, actually, I can't remember if he said Darius or Darius. We're going to go with Darius. So anyway, but working through Darius, okay, working through him, he sovereignly sends them back to rebuild or through Cyrus. And then ultimately, the work continues under Darius. So God's provision is a key theme through all of this. God is providing for his people. He provides the means, the resources, the uh, financial and uh, government support to return. He provides skilled workers to complete construction. And now you've got this gift from God, this new temple, which was central to who they were as a people, central to their identity as a people of God. All of this, as we reflect on all this, looking back, we're looking back, hindsight's winter, we're looking back, we're reading in the Word, and all, all of us would say, man, this is a beautiful picture of God's amazing grace. Israel fell hard, and this is a long story of God picking them up, dusting them off, and restoring them. But as I look at all this, I have to ask myself the question, how must they have experienced this? In other words, how did it feel on the ground? We have these verses strung together, uh, in pretty short order where uh, suddenly they return, the temple's built and all this sort of stuff. But what did it feel like on the ground? I'm sure it felt like a lot of work, right? God's grace, by the time, by the time they got to the place, the foundation had been laid and everything was complete, they had been working for a long time to get to that point, facing opposition, facing one obstacle after another, facing the most powerful empire in the ancient world at that point, a theme throughout their whole story. And now they finally got it complete, but on the ground, in the thick of it, in the midst of the storm, I'm sure it was exhausting for them. And yet that was the means of God's grace to get them to where they were ultimately. This is how God works. We've come to a time where Israel is now rejoicing Rejoicing. Now, it's not a, an accident that it says dance there. I could have just said celebrate, but we're in the middle of March Madness, so we needed to have the word dance there, okay, to reflect uh, our time in history. But I want you to reflect on something for a minute. In March Madness, you've got that beautiful picture of them climbing the, uh, the ladder or whatever, and they cut the nets. And that's uh, part of their ritual, part of their ceremony to celebrate victory. And I want you to pay attention to something, though. That last, in the grand scheme of things, what it took for them to get to that point, months, years, losses, missed shots, missed opportunities, over and over and over, loneliness in the gym, all this kind of stuff, in order to get to that point. And for Israel, they are at the cutting the nets moment. That doesn't begin to capture what they went through in order to get there. This celebration is a mixture of gratitude. It's gratitude because this is what God did. God orchestrated this. God put the right people in place. God worked through the hearts of these kings. 
but it's also a story of satisfaction. It's not, they're not just celebrating because of their gratitude for God. That's foundational to it all. But also, don't you think in the midst of all that, there's satisfaction that they had done what God called them to do. They finished the job. It's good and right for us to reflect on God's provision and grace and allow that to bubble up into gratitude and give him praise and glory. And it's also good for us to be satisfied when we have been obedient and we've seen God work through us. Human history is a long story of God picking us up ever since the fall in Genesis 3. The fall in Genesis 3, everybody falls down together with Adam and Eve. And the story of Scripture is God picking us up, dusting us off, and giving us a renewed hope and reason to dance. This is Radaf. Finally, number four. Number four, a tenet of God's redeeming grace. God prompts us to relive blessing and experience healing. Notice what they begin to do, what I read at the beginning, the Passover. Uh, they begin to celebrate and observe the Passover for the first time in many years back in their home in Jerusalem with the temple constructed. Man, how awesome must that have been. How incredible for decades to not be able to do this and now for the first time in a lifetime you're able to experience this. The final part is about remembering a key part of celebration. The Israelites renew their observance of the Passover in order to remember, in order to be reminded of who God is and what God did. Now, you can think down the years, uh, down through the years, maybe decades from now, there's going to be some people in, uh, some players who are in March Madness. They never go on to uh, the NBA or anything like that, but what are they going to do? They're going to gather their family around and they're going to have some stories to tell. Right? They're going to have some stories to tell about that shot they made, about something special they did, about some contribution, and, and they're going to tell stories. And the reason I know that is because I can tell stories about what I did in middle school athletics, right? So I'm sure if I can get mustered up enough energy to tell those stories to my kids, they can talk about March Madness. And so why do we do that? We want to share part of who we are with someone else, part of our perspective of the world with someone else. And God has baked it into our worship. He's baked it into our regular worship routine that we reflect and that we remember. And at the heart of that remembering is a retelling of our story. The Passover, what's the Passover all about? To remember, hey, y'all remember when God did this incredible thing where they were in bondage to Egypt and through all these plagues through a series of events, God led them out. He led them across the Red Sea and led them to the promised land. It's awesome. And they remember this on a regular basis. Every year they're to reflect on it. It's to be the way, the lens through which they see the world. People today talk about a worldview. That was the worldview God was giving them to see the world. And then at communion, at the Lord's Supper, what does Jesus do? He takes that story of the Passover and then he says this, these words that would be blasphemous if it were not for who Jesus was. He said, do this in remembrance of me to remember my story. He's giving them perspective on what's about to happen the next day. They have no category in their minds to understand what's about to happen the next day because messiahs do what? They, they win. 
That's like the one job description of a good Messiah, a good Christ, a good king, is that they win, right? I mean, you, that's just what, that's what you do. And they looked up the next day and they saw Jesus' body broken on the cross, his blood poured out. They couldn't possibly understand the significance in that moment until they began to reflect later the way Jesus framed everything in the light of the Passover that his body was broken, his blood was poured out. Why? Because he's leading us on an exodus of our own, coming out of sin, death, and the devil, and into the promised land of his glory and of his love. Now, let's wrap it up with, uh, by thinking about this word, radaf, one last time. Because when Jesus um, came on the scene, what was one of the big problems they had with Jesus? He keeps hanging out with tax collectors, sinners, and at one point, they really got upset with him, and they, uh, they wanted uh, to, you know, uh, really make a point about it. And so Jesus tells them three stories. Tells them three stories. One I talk about a lot because I love it so much, but they're all making the same point. All making the same point. Jesus first tells a story about the good shepherd leaving the 99 to go after the one. Folks, that's... Radaf, going on the hunt, going on the search, pursuing that lost one. Also, the story of the lost coin. The woman frantically or uh, passionately searching her house for that lost coin. And then finally, you've got the story of the prodigal son. Where the Bible says, while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. And ran to him. Ran to him. That is pursuit. That is chasing. That is goodness and mercy running after someone. And I want you to know today, goodness and mercy are on the hunt for you. Now, I've told this story, I think, once or twice before. In the last church, uh, we were a few weeks in. Uh, maybe not even a few weeks in, just a couple of weeks in. And uh, someone accidentally kind of left the nursery door cracked and uh, one of my kids shot out okay and so it's always fun when after church after you finish greeting everybody and you go to the nursery to get your kid and they're not there <laughs> so uh, so we're there and and all of a sudden there's what everybody is searching for this kid right uh, for my beloved kid. And, and so they're looking, and, and it's about a 15-minute period. Now, folks, 15 minutes is an eternity, right? In that, in that kind of situation, it's an eternity. We got people go scouring parking lots. I had one lady go up to an 18-wheeler, knock on the door, wake him up from his nap to make sure he didn't have uh, one of my kids in there. And so uh, just scouring the whole place and finally... Uh, I find this one and, uh, you know, said, hey, you know, love you, give you a big hug. And, and I think mom's going to give you a big hug first uh, before we have other conversations. But, but there's that 15 minutes of that hunting, that pursuing, that chasing. And that 15 minutes is a pale reflection of what God has done since Genesis 3 for all of us. His goodness and mercy are coming after you. And I pray this morning you'd be caught by it. 
I pray this morning you would, by faith, receive it. By faith, know that you're worth pursuing. If you weren't, God wouldn't be pursuing you. He created you in His image. You bear the image of God. And I know we're sinners. We're sinners in need of God's grace. That's not what's most true of you, though. What's most true of you is you're created in the image of God. And when you come to Christ, what's most true of you is that you're a child of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I wonder if Radoff would be a word to describe what was taking place on that rugged cross so many centuries ago when Jesus proved his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, he died on the cross, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I think that's probably a good word to describe what Jesus did on the cross out of his abundant love for you. This is how God wants us to think of him. The God who is love, this is how he wants us to think of him. This is what Jesus embodied. Gracious Father, I pray today that if there's someone here who has struggled over the years to just receive that love, that today that they would know that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that you raised him from the dead. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is also the hound of heaven coming after us. Not that he can't find us, but that we so often continue to go our own way. We continue to walk away just like the prodigal son. And so, Father, today I pray that there would be men and women in this room who receive that gospel, that good news of Christ, and that they're saved. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. The altar's open. If you want to come trust in Christ today or you want to follow through a believer's baptism or maybe you just need to come join the church and join us in the pursuit of the world, reaching the world for Christ, or just come kneel at the altar and pray that God would remind you today of his love. Whatever the case would be, I pray today that you would respond right now as we sing.